That's where we're going. Grab your Bible. Go to Job. I want to welcome uh, those of you from Russell's class. Um, he's going to be out of town this weekend and really out of pocket uh, for the next several weeks. And then uh, starting on, I think it's the 5th of June, it's, it's, it's the weekend after Memorial Day, uh, Gary's going to be starting a brand new class that I wish I could go to, but I have to teach Job. Um, on the Torah and then Exodus. So he's going to introduce the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books uh, of the Old Testament, kind of an introduction, and then he's going to go into a verse-by-verse exposition of uh, my favorite Old Testament narrative book, which is Exodus. Uh, So you can look forward to that as we kind of transition into our summer semester. Uh, Gary will be doing Exodus. I'll be continuing in Job. And we're hoping, uh, we'll let you know on this, but we're hoping to have one or two sort of seminar-type classes Um, in the Bible Institute. You know, we do these sort of 15-week, semester-long-type classes, and uh, every now and then we like to do uh, things in like a seminar format. We had Jim Neuheiser come back in uh, February, and um, I know Terry has on his radar to do a um, How to Study the Bible seminar that he would do in sort of one weekend. And uh, so anyway, so that that may be coming this summer too. Uh, More news at 10. Uh, there. But because we have uh, some new folks here, uh, I'm going to take a little bit extra time uh, to review kind of where we've been in Job to give you some context, and then we'll jump in. We hope, Lord willing, to get into chapters 4 and 5, which is Eliphaz's first speech. Uh, by the way, how do, you, how do you make possessive a name that ends in Z? Eliphaz's, I, I, it always feels like it's, it's two syllables too long, but so I put Eliphaz with an apostrophe, and I think that's how you do it writing correctly, but I'm not sure uh, how to say it. So if it comes out funny, don't laugh. All right. Uh, Job chapter 1 and 2. Uh, as, we, as we open up the book of Job, we're introduced to a very, very prominent, blessed, prosperous, righteous man. And the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that this man was the most prominent, the richest, the most well-known, and most importantly, the most godly man that existed in this region in this day. Which is why we're shocked as soon as we're introduced to Job of this plot that Satan has apparently against him as we're given a scene in verses uh, 6 and following in chapter 1, and then we see it again in chapter 2, Uh, This scene where literally the curtain of heaven is pulled back and we have opportunity to see something that quite literally never happens in the rest of Scripture. And that is we get to see a dialogue amongst the heavenly host, the angels, including Satan and God himself. And uh, you know the exchange there. God calls Satan's attention to Job. And then uh, Satan lays forth this challenge that goes something like this. The only reason that Job honors God, worships God, walks with God, is so righteous, is because God has blessed his life so much. And the challenge is, God, if you remove that blessing from his life, you will see his true colors. You will see that, in fact, Job is a phony. He is, he is a crooked Christian, is what he is. He's a fake. That his worship is only based on the good things that God has given him. And so we see that. Uh, God gives Satan power. 
uh, over uh, Job's life. He comes in and uh, he takes away his farmland. He takes away his servants. He takes away his fields. He takes away all of his livelihood, which would have been equated to losing not just your job, but your entire retirement savings, your savings accounts. In that day, he was totally wiped out. And then on that same day, moments later, we hear the servants come in one by one saying that, that Job had also lost all of his children in a tragic uh, storm. And we see at the end of chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, that's very important because I mean, we look at that and we say, wow, what an what a, what a amazing response. But remember, this is all about God's plan to show and thwart the plan of Satan, that he is wrong, that he is totally um, in error about his assessment of Job. And really, and really what God is doing in Satan's life through Job is vindicating his own name that God is worthy to be worshipped, not because of the blessings that he gives us, but because he's God, and because of that, he has intrinsic worth that makes worshipping him uh, what we should do. Um, and then in chapter 2, we see sort of round 2 as um, Satan comes back to Job and uh, says, well, that's great, but um, he's still got his health, and that's why he's doing well. Take away his health, skin for skin. He quotes that, that proverb of the day. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. So take away his health, Satan says, and he will again curse you to your face. Once again, uh, God gives him permission. Satan goes and uh, takes away his livelihood. We talked about this terrible disease or diseases that he had where he ends up outside the city on the ash heap, uh, blackened in skin, his eyes swollen shut, uh, boils all over his body. Those boils were bleeding. They were infected with worms and infection. He was so, so disfigured by this that people would walk up to him and they wouldn't recognize him. And in the midst of that, Job's wife comes in and calls Job to curse God and die. And yet Job still holds fast his integrity he responds to his wife, uh, "Shall we indeed accept adversity from God and not accept the, or not accept good things from God and not accept adversity?" And the end of chapter two, verse ten, and all this Job did not sin with his lips. What do we learn in that first chapter? Again, for those of you that are just joining us today, here's what we learn from those first two chapters: uh, that God is to be submitted to as the sovereign agent over every event of your life. We see the sovereignty of God. The, by the way, these are not in your notes. This is just review for those of you that are joining us from Doc's class. Secondly, to embrace all that God gives you as an undeserved gift of His grace. That, that's, that's how we explain Job's response. How can he say, naked I came and naked I'll return, blessed be the name of the Lord? How, how can he say that? And the answer is, he understood that everything he had was a gift of grace, a gift of undeserved grace. Number three, um, we need to acknowledge God's right to give and take away according to his good plan. Job trusted that God was all-wise and good and all-knowing and that what he was doing was the right thing for God to do in his life. Number four, to worship and praise God in every circumstance because he is worthy. To recognize God's absolute sovereignty without blaming him for evil. That's, that's that wonderful balance 
where he says God did this, but not in a way that was saying that God did something evil or sinful or wrong. And then finally, to accept whatever God brings about in your life without sinning. So that's kind of the jet tour of the first two chapters. That's where we've been. And then uh, that that's, uh, brings up, and I, I want to give this to you a lot. I've probably showed you this twice now, but I want to do this on a regular basis because it's very important as we dive into these long, poetic, narrative chapters that if we're honest, we kind of skim through in our Bible reading plans sometimes because we're trying to get through all the poetry and dialogue and all that. It's very important. If we're not going to drown in chapters 4 to 31, which is where we're going, okay? if we're not going to drown it there, we've got to keep the big picture in mind. Okay, So let me remind you what Job is about. There are three themes in the book of Job. There's the theme of worship. That's what the first two chapters are about. That's what we've seen. The issue of worship is, is about this. Why should we worship God? Why should we worship God? Satan's challenge was people only worship God because of the blessings he gives. God has to buy worshipers. And so the first theme in Job is designed to teach us something about worship. Why should we worship? And the answer is because God is worthy of our worship. Not because of the blessings he brings. Those are great and we're going to praise him for that. But we worship God because he is intrinsically worthy of that. And the three themes, I told you this last time, the three themes in Job revolve around the three main characters of the book. Because Satan, this guy right here, is the one who has a faulty view of worship. And so God is going to address this first theme of worship in order to correct Satan's bad theology about worship. So theme number one of worship revolves around the character of Satan. The second theme is the theme of suffering, and particularly how this whole thing works between prosperity and suffering, between blessing and what appears to be judgment. And the book of Job, secondly, is going to address this issue of suffering. Why do people suffer? Why do people have prosperity? Because Job's three friends have a faulty view of suffering. And we're going to see that in Eliphaz's uh, first speech this morning. Okay? Sounded like I was a skipping CD there for a second, huh? Um, they have a faulty view of suffering. And, and here's how this works. When you do what is right... God blesses your life and makes you prosperous. When you do what is wrong, he brings suffering and judgment. And that was the extent of their theology. And God is going to correct that in the book of Job because that is not accurate theology. The third theme, which we will get into later on, is the theme of justice. Because ultimately, Job, this righteous man who so far has not sinned in the story... What happens when we get to chapter 39? Does God have something to say to Job? Does he have nothing but kind and praiseworthy words for Job? No, quite the opposite, right? Something happens, and this is so important. You've got to look, as we get into these chapters here of the dialogues, you've got to look for this issue to arise in Job's life. He hasn't sinned yet, but he's going to. 
the, the longevity of the trial, the duration of the suffering is going to finally break him down and we're going to see something in his heart which is the main topic, the main issue that God is going to address in chapters 39 and following. And it's the issue of justice because ultimately what Job is going to say is this, God, you are being unjust. And, and Job will charge God with injustice. So the character we're looking at here is Job himself. And so you see that the three themes in the book, the theme of worship, the theme of suffering, the theme of justice, revolve around the three main characters, around Satan, who has the faulty view of worship, around the three friends that have the faulty view of why we suffer, and around Job, who has the faulty view of God's justice. Now, here's what you got to see. This is not a horizontal theology lesson. This is not ultimately a book that teaches us about worship and suffering and justice so that we can have a better life or so that we can relate to each other better. No, this is first and foremost... Oh, oh by the way, before we do that, the reason I put the circles and, the, and they all um, meet... What do you call that? Intersect. intersect. Thank you. I, I failed geometry, so I remember that you had to learn the term. They, they intersect, yes. All of those themes get played out in whose life? In Job. He is the living, breathing stage in which God is going to address these three issues. So he's in the middle of all those things, living through it. He's, he's the stage. He's, he's the laboratory that all of this is going to occur in. Okay, But like I said, ultimately, this is not just a horizontal lesson. Ultimately, watch this. Who's this really about? It's ultimately about the character of God, isn't it? Satan's charge is God is not worthy of worship in and of himself. Do you think that's a big deal to God? That strikes at the heart of his character, doesn't it? He's not worthy. He's not worthy to be praised. He's not valuable. Remember I took you to Revelation a long time ago? What are we going to sing in heaven? Worthy are you to, to receive glory and honor and dominion. That, that's the echo of heaven. That, that's the bottom line of praise. So it strikes God at the heart of his character, why we worship him. It also strikes at the character of God in terms of suffering. Is God just a vending machine? If you put the good stuff in, you get a good stuff out. You put bad stuff in, you get bad stuff. Is that, is that our theology of God? So that also gets at the character of God. And then finally, when Job attacks God's character by accusing him of being unjust, again, that strikes right at the heart of who God is. So ultimately, this is a book, you ready? about the character of God. It's about straightening out three wrong ideas about who God is and why He does what He does. Okay? Now, we're going to jump into... Um, we, well, back up for a second. This is in chapter 1 and 2. So we're kind of leaving that and we're moving down to the second circle where the three friends come in to talk about suffering. That's kind of where we are uh, in our study. Now you see in chapter, the end of chapter 2, verse 11, Job's three friends show up. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. How many of you guys have grandkids named, to, uh, named to Eliphaz, Bildad? <laughs> okay. Ancient, ancient names, so, but interesting names. And they come, and, and verse 12 says they're going to come in and they see Job and they don't recognize him. That's how disfigured he was because of this disease. 
Okay, his best friends don't recognize him. And they raise their voices, verse 12, and they wept. They tore their robes. They throw dust over their heads, which would be ancient versions of how you mourned in that day. And then they sit down in the ashes, in the ash heap outside the city for seven days and seven nights without saying a word because he is in such agony. And, and I know some of you have been there. You've sat in a hospital room with somebody who is in such pain. It's like all you can do is be with them. Um, speaking seems to be out of turn. And then chapter 3, verse 1, Job speaks. And he basically curses the day of his birth. He says, why didn't I die when I was born? Why didn't I just die when my mother was still pregnant with me? Why, why didn't she miscarry, he says. And one of the things, and I talked to you about this last time, one of the things that's very, very important as we go into this dialogue section is to make note of the questions that the characters ask. Okay? Do you remember this? The questions. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. Job says, Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Those are not things you say when your life is going well. Right? Those are things that you say when you are at the pit. You are at the bottom. You are depressed. You are discouraged. You are hurting. And you can't take it anymore. And that reminds us of some of the uses of suffering. This is, again, just review, but I want to go through these very quickly. What, what is God's design in suffering? Well, He has an instructional use because suffering teaches and instructs me. There's a revelatory use because suffering will reveal what's in my heart. That, that's what we're going to see in Job, right? As this suffering comes in, God is going to raise an issue in his heart that he was not aware of. What is it? What is it? What issue is God going to use the suffering to raise in Job's heart, to show Job is in his heart that he wasn't seeing before? Not faith. That, that, uh, that's what we hope is there. But what, what thing that God wants to change is going to be raised through his suffering? Yeah, fair or justice, right? Okay, it's that third circle we had up there. So God is going to use suffering in a revelatory sense to reveal things. You ever notice that? Do you notice how something as simple as a cold shows you how irritable you are and how impatient you can be and how unkind to even the people you love the most can be? Doesn't that blow you away? You go, what? why do I? Just a little cold. It's just a little bit of suffering. And you go, wow. You say, well, the cold may mean it. No, no, we, we're better scholars than that. We're better theologians than that. That impatience, that anger, that bitterness, that unkindness was there the whole time. The cold just revealed it. Or as uh, my professor Wayne Mack used to say, our hearts are like sponges. You don't know what's inside until they get squeezed. And then they come out. So suffering has a revelatory use. It shows me what's in my heart. Thirdly, an optometric use. Suffering causes me to spiritually see more clearly. We see that, see that all throughout Scripture. And we've seen it in the book of Job so far. Number four, a sanctificational use. Suffering conforms me to Christ. That's Romans 8. God is using all things uh, for my good to make me more like Christ. Suffering, fifthly, has an authenticating use. That's 1 Peter 1. Suffering reveals the authenticity of my faith. 
That's why suffering is good, because an untested faith is a suspicious faith, right? That's what Peter's saying. You want to have a tested faith because you want to know your faith is real. And then finally, and this is what gets into Job here, is in what we call an inquisitional use. Suffering causes me to ask questions that I ordinarily would not ask. Isn't that true? Mom gets cancer. Um, your, your son or daughter isn't walking with the Lord. Uh, someone at work is killed in a tragic accident. Someone takes their own life. Um, when stuff like that happens, we start asking questions that we would never ask when life is going normal, right? And that's part of God's design. That's part of what he's doing. And so when Job says, why did I not die at birth? God is moving Job to a place where he can teach him and instruct him and grow him. And part of God's design is raising these questions. So so here's my my suggestion. As you read through these chapters, you guys still reading through Job? I should be take, I should do like I did when I was teaching college and send the homework sheet around and you just sign off if you did your homework and, no, I won't do that. But anyway, um, keep reading Job. But as you get into these sections, and I, okay, one of the best ways to study it, uh, you can do it in your Bible or maybe just make a mark in a journal if you don't like to mark in your Bible. Mark all the questions that the characters ask. Because what the character, the questions that the characters are asking is part of what God is doing in revealing Himself through the book. Gary, you had a comment or a question. I saw your hand up there. Well, and, and uh, <laughs> you know, just a, a quick footnote on that. Most of us fight against what God is doing in that, don't we? I'm not angry, right? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing wrong. You know, what's wrong, honey? I'm fine. You know, oh, yeah, right. I can see that. And um, <laughs> isn't it true? That's exactly what we do. And, and, and here's the thing. Here's what I want you to see. When we do that, we are fighting the very thing, the very instrument that God is using to grow us and change us. You know, we say, Lord, I want to be like you. Know, we, we, we sing the songs, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to be more like Christ. He says, okay, and he gives you a cold or whatever. And then you go out ah, and, and you get defensive and, and, and you blame shift. And, and we fight against the very instrument that God is using to make us like his son. And, and that's I appreciate you saying that because because that that's so often what we do and um, and I think recognizing that we can start being a part of what God wants to do in our life instead of fighting against what He's trying to do in our life. Okay, but those are some of the uses of suffering. And um, if just 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 for a second, think back to the last sort of trial that you went through, or maybe you're going through a trial right now. Okay, just you got it in your mind. Just kind of think about it. Look through that list real quick. Okay. Or maybe just take some time this afternoon or later this week and just go through that and say, what was God doing to teach me? What was he doing 
to reveal things in my heart that needed to change? What was he doing to see more clearly? And I always think of 2 Corinthians 12. I see God's grace to sustain me in ways that I could never see when, when things are going well. What's he doing to make me more like Christ? What's he doing to show that my faith is real? Or not real? And what's, what questions is he causing me to ask that are designed to help me in some way? Okay, so maybe take, take some time later this week and go through that. Okay, now, we're in, starting in chapter 4, as Job goes through um, his questions there, um, what's called the debate section. Okay, the debate section. Um, by the way, j- just listen to some of the, I was going to say this a minute ago, just listen to some of the questions that the characters ask in the next few chapters. You ready? Just listen to this, this list. Job says, why did I not die at birth? He says, why is light given to him who suffers? What's the point? Why give life and ability to somebody who's just going to suffer? Why does God keep alive those who wish to die? A question he asks later on in chapter 3. In chapter 7, he says, what is man, God, that you even care about him? In chapter 7, he says, God, if I've sinned, why don't you just forgive me and get over this? Make me better. Chapter 9, verse 2, Job asks, How can a man be right before God? Keep that in mind because Eliphaz is going to say that. How can a man be right before God? How can a sinner stand justified before God? you think that's a really good question to ask? Okay, so let's look at this debate section. Now, again, I'm going to give you some help so you don't drown in the midst of this, okay? The debate section starts in chapter 4 and goes through chapter 31, okay? And like I said, it's that part where we all tend to kind of drift off and speed through, do that that college read that all of our college students are doing this week as they, you know, they're finishing up finals and they had to read the textbook and now they're doing that speed read thing. I know you guys never did that in college. But watch how this goes, okay? Eliphaz starts speaking and he has a speech, okay? And then Job is going to respond to that speech. And then Bildad is going to speak. Then he's going to have a little speech. And then Job will respond to that speech. And then Zophar is going to speak. And then Job will respond to that. And then it starts all over again three times. Okay? If you keep that in mind... Hopefully you won't get lost in the woods. You know what I mean? Okay? Because you're going to get in here. You're going to be, you know, the second time somewhere down here. And you're going to, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what from down. But, you know, where, where's, where's this part where God speaks? That's good. Right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Use my map. I'm giving you a map because because I love you guys. Okay? I want to help you. Okay? Here's your map to navigate through. the. It, it's very predictable. Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. And then they do it all over again three times. Okay? And I told you I was going to do this last time, and I didn't put it in your notes, so I put it in your notes. There's the actual verse breakdown. I put those in your notes there so you can see where each of the speeches ends and begins. So this I'm calling this round one. Okay, This is the first little jot through the woods here. Eliphaz, oh, lost my laser, uh, 
Job responds, Bildad, Job responds, Zophar, then Job responds. There's round one, round one, then round two, and these are all printed in your notes there. Now watch this. This is very interesting. Um, there's a progression that happens in these verses too. As you read them, you're going to see all of the characters be more impatient with each other. You're going to see them be more harsh in their words with each other. It's really interesting. I mean, this could have been a snapshot from the last argument you had with your spouse. Okay? Just pick a conflict and the pattern of the conflict. And you see that and you go, that's exactly what people tend to do. They start off all nice and polite and try to kind of beat around the bush. And by the end of it, it's like, here's what your problem is and here's what you're going to do. Right? That's what's going on here. Now, now watch how this goes. Job responds to Bildad and he's waxing eloquent here. And he, this has gone on for so long. By the time it gets to Zophar's turn, you know what he does? He says, I'll pass. And he doesn't speak his third time. That's the only ambigu- or only thing that breaks the pattern. So you know what Job does? He does whatever, what any good preacher does. He, he just keeps right on going. Okay? He starts in 26. He's not going to end till 31 verse 40. Okay? He just keeps right on going there. So, real quick again, so you don't get lost in the woods. Can you remember that? Okay? Three, it's, it's a three-fold cycle. Okay? Well, now that you understand where we're going, let's look at chapter 4, verse 1, and let's jump into the first speech of Eliphaz. By the way, here, here's my plan for teaching, and you guys can give me suggestions. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take each of these speeches, and we probably won't have a chance to look at every single word and verse, but what we're going to do is we're going to pick the main themes and the main key verses in each one of those speeches because you need to see the overall thrust of what is going on there. Okay, So that's what we're going to do. We're talking about Eliphaz today, and then next week we'll talk about Job's response, and then we'll go from there. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite, that just tells us where he was from. He was from the city of Taman. He answers... Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Let's stop right there. What's the first thing that Eliphaz says to Job? What's the first thing he says? What's that? Job, you're being impatient. Okay? Make a little thing in your notes right now that says, things I want to avoid in ministering to people that are suffering. Just make it right in your notes there. Okay? Walking up to somebody in the midst of their suffering and telling them how impatient they are is not a good way to go. But haven't we all been there? These guys have sat with Job for seven days and seven nights. They've watched him in his misery. They've watched him in his agony. And you, you know, and some of you are, do this more than others, okay? So I'm, I'm not going to ask for any hands. But don't we do this sometimes when someone is suffering for a long period of time and something's going on in their life? Don't we start going, hmm, I wonder why this is happening? Don't we do that? 
And that can be a good and righteous and holy thing. But that's not where this book starts. And, and I'm, we'll take a whole time to talk about this, but we need to be very, 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 very careful when we minister to people that are suffering. Okay? I remember last year when I was kind of just reading through Job devotionally and I came to that verse and I went, whoa! And I wrote down something like this. It's easy to be unsympathetic when you're not the one going through it. Isn't that true? It's easy to say, ah, come on, it's not so bad. Ah, come on. You know, and and what what is he going to say? He's going to go on to say, verse 3, Behold, you have admonished many. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. He's saying, Job, I've heard you preach on this before. I've heard you talk about suffering before. I've heard exactly what you're supposed to do. Why aren't you doing that? And it's so easy to become impatient and unsympathetic and ungracious when we're not the ones going through it. So the first thing is he's going to accuse Job of being impatient. And and lest we misunderstand him, look at verse 5. Your word, verse 4, your words have helped the tottering to stand. You have strengthened feeble hands. Verse 5, but now it has come upon you and you're impatient. Yes, sir. We were talking a minute ago about how God uses suffering in a revelatory way, right? He, he uses it to reveal things in my heart. And one of the things we see in the friends and one of the things we see in Job is that longevity in suffering tends to really do that, doesn't it? When I see somebody going through suffering and, you know, I, I, I first get the phone call. I'm like, I'm making meals, I'm going to watch the kids, I'm going over to mow the lawn, and I'm, I'm all about that, right? And we're the body of Christ, right? And then we do that for a few weeks. And then the suffering doesn't go away. And it becomes a few months. And, and, and at best, at best, we often forget about those people, right? And there's people in this church right here that are in those situations. But at worst, we go... Are they still stuck on that? Can they not get it together? And God is taking the scalpel and He is doing heart surgery, not in them, He's doing it in us. And He's saying, you know what? It ought not be that way. Um, You know what? 
these guys traveled a great distance, probably a month or more journey to be with Job. Okay, that's good. And we commend them for that. They sat with him for seven days. We commend them for that. You know, what you say in a hospital room to somebody. You know what I found? Can I, can I just, confessions of a rookie pastor. Can, can we just talk about that for a minute? When I first came to this church as an intern, Terry took me everywhere. Took me everywhere. The first week, I think we did a funeral together. Okay? And then I think the second week, um, I think, is that when you guys, we went to Cope? That, was, that wasn't nice, man. That was... No, just kidding. <laughs> Went to cope. That was fun. Um, and very, very soon after I got there, um, we did some hospital visitation. And I don't know if you've ever seen... Is T- Terry's not here. I can say this. Um, he wouldn't like me to say this if he's here. Have you ever seen Terry minister in a hospital room? He ha- You know about the, the man that has the one talent, the guy that has ten talents? Okay. I've got like a quarter of a talent in that area. Terry's got like 3,000. And one of the most amazing things I learned as a rookie pastor, and I still think, I still think he's one of the most gifted persons I've seen in that context. Um, he goes, he's the first person there. You know that, right? He's the first person there. CC beats him every now and then, but usually he's the first person there. And he opens his mouth and you go, And he, he does the exact opposite of what we see these friends do. He ministers to the person. And I'll tell you right now, that is a gift. Uh, and I'd encourage it as I have. Um, that's something that needs to be developed. It needs to be learned. Because what we say in those contexts, as we see, so often it's our own discomfort, right? We're, we're uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. And so what comes out is like, ugh. And I think part of what we're supposed to learn, these three friends did a pretty good job encouraging Job when they hadn't said a word. They got in trouble when they opened their mouth. Okay? Now, I'm not saying, you know, we're silent ministers for Jesus here because there's a time to speak. But, but I, hope, I hope we can glean from Eliphaz here uh, an example of what not to do. He accuses Job of being impatient. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. Look at verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity... And those who sow trouble harvest it. Stop right there. Stop. Er, Pull the car over. Verse 8. According to what I have... Okay, stop, 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 stop. What is he basing his advice upon? Personal experience. Did you catch that? Here's what we tend to do when we give advice, especially in a context like this. We try to give advice, we try to give help out of our own experience. Okay. Now, again, I'm not saying that's ever wrong, 
But the reason he, he takes the first foot and takes the step in the wrong direction is it is his experience that is driving his response, not good theology. I've seen, what, what I've seen is this guy is responsible, he's prosperous. This guy is a flake and he's got problems. And he says, innocent people don't perish. Verse 8, people reap what they sow. Did you hear that? That's probably where Paul got it in Galatians. God is not mocked, right? Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, is that biblical? (laughs) This is going to be fun. Is that biblical? Yes, it's in the Bible. It better be, right? People do reap what they sow. Galatians 6 says, God is not mocked. What people sow, that they will also reap. So I'm going to ask you a question. Whoops. Uh, let's, verse 9, then we'll come back to that. Verse 9. Um, by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. So, so not only is, is Eliphaz saying, Job, you're just reaping what you sow. Obviously you're not innocent because the innocent don't suffer. God's punishing you. God is punishing you. God is disciplining you. That's what he says there. The breath of God, those people that sow trouble perish. That's what he's saying. By the blast of his anger. Who's the his? That's God, right? He's saying God is specifically punishing Job. Now, does God discipline his children? Yes, that's Hebrews, right? Do we reap what we sow? Yes, we do. So let me ask you this question. What's wrong with his logic? What's that? Okay, so he's making some assumptions. What did you say, Gary? Uh, or, or Bill? Okay, assuming. Okay, someone else. What's wrong with the logic, Roger? This is vending machine theology, right? That's right. I put the dollar in, I get the Coke. Okay, I only put 50 cents in, I don't get the Coke. That, that, that's Okay, that's part of it. Henry? That's the only reason we suffer. Okay, okay. I got to go to the board here. Is it true that people, if they sow bad things, they're going to reap that, right? Okay. What happens in Scripture when we take one verse and we make it the only thing the Bible says on the issue? We get in, yeah, we start a cult. That's right. <laughs> Let's pray on that note. No. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. We get in big trouble, don't we? And you guys are all right. That's true. That's absolutely true. But, but here, here's the thing. Here's suffering. And one of you said it. I can't have, the Bible does not present a one size fits all approach to suffering. What we, we just saw it, right? We've seen all sorts of stuff that suffering does. It's In the first two chapters, it's about Satan. It's not about Job. It's about Satan. Um, and so we, we've got to see that this, this is more than just, you know, I did sin. Now, do we suffer because of sin? Sure we do. We also suffer because we live in a sin-cursed world, right? We also suffer because people sin against us. We also suffer because of 
Satan, right? Isn't that the answer here? Uh, yeah, yeah, God's working it, God's sovereign. Satan is, is the immediate agent of that suffering, right? And we also suffer, ultimately, actually, let's just do it like this. Because God is sovereign over all that. And he's using all that for all those reasons that we saw a minute ago, the uses of suffering. So if I take a one-size-fits-all approach to suffering based on my experience, it's a fatal combination. And this is, this is the only tool I've got in my theology of suffering. I'm going to get in big trouble. Because not only am I wrong, I end up hurting the person I'm trying to minister to. Do you see that? Yeah, Rich. Yes. Who has known the mind of the Lord, right? Who became his counsel? We're going to get there. And that's part of what, what we're supposed to learn is, you know, if somebody is suffering, you can be a good godly friend wisely, graciously, in wisdom, and get to the place where you help them to think through all this stuff. I mean, the Bible says we should examine ourselves. We should look uh, and, and, and examine ourselves. Psalm 19, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my, my anxious thoughts. Well, that's, that's biblical, right? But we need to be very, very careful about assuming because we do not know the mind of the Lord. What we can always do, what can we always do in ministering to somebody in suffering? What can we always do that we know is true, that's right, that's good, and is actually going to help the person? What, we, what can we always do? We can pray. I knew you were going to say that. But that's not what we're going to do. We, I mean, we are going to pray. Don't get me wrong. We pray, yes. Pray. Scratch that from the tape, guys. Um, <laughs> Pastor Kisa, we shouldn't pray for people that are suffering. Um, no, we are going to pray. What can we always tell the person? Okay, even even more general than that, because that that's true. But that's going to be a process. I'm going to want to minister to somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking. You know, the the the, the trial comes down. Okay, it boom, it hits. What can you always say to somebody? Amen. You want to point them to the goodness, to the kindness to the graciousness, to the control, to the wonder of their Savior. And you say, you know what, I, I, I don't know what you're going through. I, I can't relate. I'm praying for you. Um, and I know God is good. And I know He's going to work in you. I know He's going to help. He's good. He's kind. We can trust Him. I know that might be hard for you right now. But in, in, in any way, you help them to see God. You help them to see God. You, I'll say this. You will never hurt somebody in suffering if you're pointing them to God like that. Okay, let's pray.